Today, we have CPI in the studio to talk about their role in the Florida dependency system. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and I'm here with Kat. And today we have two special guests in the studio. From CPI, we have Sarah Anthony as CPI supervisor and Kelly Johnson as CPI program manager. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Yeah. So Sarah and Kelly, let me ask you a very serious question. What are your favorite drinks at Starbucks? <laughs> I'm more of a Dunkin' person. If you were at Starbucks, what would you order? Okay. Um, so I'll go with a frozen mocha frappuccino. I like it. I'm a simple vanilla latte. I love vanilla. I like their peppermint mocha lattes too during Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're feeling the holiday spirit. It's well, coming. And soon the air felt different this morning. Can you tell us what CPI is and what its main role is in child welfare? CPI is, in a nutshell, making sure kids are safe. So our job, we kind of come in in the front lines and evaluate different situations based on what is reported to make sure that children are safe in the home. You know, if there are some issues with families that kids are still safe, but, you know, they might need some help or guidance, then we need to connect them with uh, services to make sure that they engage and kind of course correct. And if children are not safe, then we have to make decisions about how to make them safe because we can't walk away um, leaving a child unsafe. Will you tell me what does CPI stand for? Just so that we can be clear. Oh, child protection investigations or investigator. Okay. On. Just for anybody who doesn't live in Florida. Yeah. Um, can you tell us what a day in the life of a CPI or a family support worker looks like? Um, so for a CPI, they um, do the child abuse investigations. So a call is made to the hotline in Tallahassee. The hotline specialists there triage the call to see whether or not it meets statute criteria for suspected abuse or neglect. Um, if they decide it does meet criteria, then the hotline sends the information to our local receiving unit. So our case assignment unit then processes those intakes and they run um, backgrounds on the participants and everyone that they can find related to the household of focus where the safety concern is at, um, including department histories, criminal histories, local law enforcement histories, and they provide all that information to the assigned CPI. So the CPI then receives that information 
They review it and assess it for patterns and trends, and they contact the reporter to kind of validate the information that's mm-hmm. in the intake, um, getting the extra details, really determine how the reporter knows that information or how or why they suspect that information to be true. And then they contact any sources that might be listed in the intake that might have additional information. Once they have a good idea of the history and patterns, then they go out and they meet with the victims um, and they interview them in a space where they feel safe and kind of go through not just what's alleged, but also kind of get a good idea of how their household functions in general. Then they will meet with the other household members uh, and the parents involved. And depending on the intake type, they might speak with relatives. Um, they might speak with schools and professionals who are involved with the family to get their input. Because we really want to look at the family in a holistic view. And based off of that information, they kind of make a preliminary safety decision at that time to say, you know, today is this kid safe? Mm-hmm. If yes, then they continue with their information collection. Um, and assess for service needs. If they determine that a child is unsafe, then they start working with the parents or caregivers to formulate a plan to try and provide a safety net bubble around the child mm-hmm. while they try to connect the family with services. And along those lines, can you kind of give us an idea of the percentage of cases that end up needing removal mm-hmm. versus the ones that are able to maintain the children in the home and just provide services? So our removal rates are based on victims. So um, not so much cases, but um, for every 100 victims, we do a removal rate. I think right now for Pinellas County, it's around an 8%. Uh, It's been higher after COVID kind of hit just because a lot of service providers and community services really aren't in the homes or engaged or connection. So the relationship discord or any kind of family problems are escalating escalating and no one's around to really see those red flags to kind of catch it at a lower level. So that's been difficult in our line of work just because, you know, removals are never easy. Um, but so we're, we're at about eight per 100. That's pretty extraordinary. So 92% of the time, you're not even removing the kid. Right. And then, you know, we, we definitely look to see what's available um, to see if there's something that we can do to put in a plan so that we don't have to remove. So yeah, 92% of the time, that's correct. Before COVID, it was lower. So 92% of the time, they're not not removed at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but of that 92%, are those like unsubstantiated or able to give services or both? So some could be no indicators. Mm-hmm. Some could be not substantiated. Okay, so some, it's all. Some could be verified, but we found that maybe there was a present danger issue, but, you know, we rectified it with education. It could have been that a kiddo uh, got out in the middle of the night and the parent didn't know that they could open the doors and access. So, sure. you know, did the child get out? Yes. But that doesn't mean that you need to remove or that they might need any services. So it, it's really kind of all. Every family is assessed individually so that we can tailor specific referrals or services to what's impacting the family at that time. I mean, sometimes it's just a family that needs support, right? Right. You know, um, I think that lack of community supervision is like huge. I think COVID has been so difficult with that because families are just in crisis. Yeah. Things together all the time. And then 
we don't have OT, PT, therapy, like all these people are not coming to the house like they used to. Yeah. Over the past year, the removals have been a lot more abuse than I've seen in the past. We're all frustrated. We're all so worn out and sick of wearing masks and sick of people getting sick and sick of, you know, people fighting over vaccination or no vaccination Mm -hmm. and, you know, mask or no mask. So I'm curious if, if that really is true on the bigger picture, that there is a higher rate of kids being abused because people are frustrated and stressed and anxiety is like unbelievable levels. Are you guys seeing different reasons for removal? Yeah. So I think our our biggest removal trends are still there. Yeah. Substances, Uh neglect, inadequate supervision, Uh family violence. But we're seeing higher levels of physical injury and sexual abuse than we've seen in the past. They're still relatively lower than a lot of the yeah. other maltreatments uh, compared to the other reports, but we've seen an increase in those. Yeah, but I agree with you, Jack. When I wrote CBHAs and people would say stuff to me like, I don't know how you do your job. I would usually say it's not what you think because I really didn't see what you're talking about very often. Yeah, but lately I'm seeing it more and more. Yeah, from 2002 to 2009. For I was uh, I worked in Texas as a case manager, but there it's very different. And so we had to do investigations every six weeks on call for a week. So we had to learn that job too. And um, I remember learning the statistics at that time, and it was it averaged like five percent. So it's so interesting to hear eight percent removal rate. Is that kind of on the high end for right now? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And um, of course that that was a long time ago. And every now and then I I. We'll think, I wonder if that's still accurate. You know, I would say prior to November, we would run anywhere from three to five percent. Oh, one month, maybe six percent. Okay. But then after November, so that's a good six months, seven months Mm -hmm. after everybody started shutting down. Oh, um, that makes so much sense. We started seeing it trending higher and higher and higher. At the same time, it trending higher and higher, we were seeing more community services only going virtual or remote. And then case management doing virtual or remote. And our visits were virtual and remote. And even the in-home visiting programs that target high-risk populations were going virtual. And, you know, when you've got a community who may not have access frequently Mm -hmm. to technology or, you know, just utilizing technology can be a barrier Mm -hmm. sometimes, getting frustrated with that. And then losing that connection to people, Mm -hmm. um, I think that played a significant impact. And I think we're seeing that play out now. Yeah. How do we fix that? (laughs) I mean, all my wheels are turning, but... um I mean, I'm thinking back to like when, you know, all of our, like we, we lost all those restaurant jobs and all those like service jobs and people didn't have any money mm-hmm. and all that stress, you know, like your hierarchy of needs and like you just, you're worried about rent and you're worried about eating and you're worried about all those things and how people probably weren't coping well. And so we know about family support workers. We know about CPI, um, but are there other people behind the scenes who help support this process? We have a lot of great team members within CPID. We've got our case assignment unit that I mentioned earlier. The case assignment unit is the one that receives the intakes from the hotline, and they do a great job gathering all the available information from the databases that we have access to, Mm -hmm. like the local law enforcement, national law enforcement, Um, criminal histories, prior histories, court histories, school information. Mm -hmm. So they 
kind of prepare all that history for the CPIs. Mm -hmm. And then you've got um, the family support workers who are there to assist the CPIs in their information collection. And they really take over the child's needs um, Mm -hmm. if an out-of-home placement does occur. Uh, We've got our diligent search analysts who are amazing at finding parents, relatives, kids, if we have someone missing Mm -hmm. or if um, we need to locate another parent or Mm -hmm. another other relatives or even explaining like um, a different court order from another state or something like that. Oh my I mean, gosh. Ridiculously smart. When I was talking to foster parents about you guys coming in, one of the things they all wanted to know is how are they able to do stuff that nobody else can do? Like they can do things in hours, getting a home study done or and, and being able to place kids with relatives, sometimes even in other locations, whereas in case management, there's so much more time that passes. And I don't know if it's because they have different requirements or you guys have different resources, but why do you think you guys are able to do that in such a way? I don't think we have different resources. Aside from we can run criminal histories up front and I I've heard, I'm not an expert on case management, but I've heard that they have to kind of outsource that a little bit. Um, So that may take some time, but our sheriff is very committed to, you know, getting that information done as quickly Mm -hmm. as possible. Um, You know, if we see a barrier, why do we have that barrier? Is it something that we can break that? Yeah. You know, what, what do we need to get past this to move these kiddos or this family or whatever the problem is to the next stage so that they can be on their journey to um, where they need to be. That's a great attitude. Absolutely. And I know as a foster parent, it's just frustrating sometimes to watch from this end and know that this child wants to be with that grandma and uncle, sister, whatever. And it's like, why does it take so long to get them there? And I think it's important too to remember though, like when we place with a home study, it's either that we're recommending that home study because it's the initial placement. Once once you do that initial placement, you know, if you want to place with somebody else, you have to have a court order. Mm-hmm. So if, oh. if they're not in that, you know, if you don't have discretion to place given by the judge and and instead you know the court has that this child is placed with so-and-so you have to go back to court so when we initially remove we we go to court within 24 hours for the shelter shelter hearing hearing. right so if we can pass a home study and we approve it then yes at shelter hearing we present that this is who we placed with we did a home study and it's approved we're requesting that the child be placed with whoever that is and then and then the order is written that way. So it is because you're able to place with them before there's a court order that you're able to do it so quickly. And then once that placement has happened, any other change in the future uh, requires the court order, which obviously would take more time. I mean, most of the time, I don't want to say all the time, right. because if you, if you have discretion, yeah. then then yeah. that's different. Can you give us a breakdown of the basic types of cases that you receive? Well, substances are huge. We get anywhere from... You know, babies born with marijuana in their system to homes where there's a lot of drug use going on. We have neglect is probably really high up there with substances. A lot of times they're co-occurring and we have quite a few that are co-occurring with family violence, too. Those are our three biggest types of cases or our three types of cases that we see the most. Um, what is it that determines whether you can safety plan or whether you need to remove? If we go out and we do our investigation 
investigation and information collection, we determine a child is unsafe. Then we have certain criteria that we look at to see if we're able to do an in-home plan or not. The home has to be calm and consistent so that we can safely implement a plan. The parents have to be willing to admit that, yes, there is an mm-hmm. issue that we need to work on and agree to cooperate with a safety plan and the parameters of what the plan needs to be. We need to have sufficient safety services to be able to monitor to make sure that the plan is working and that it's at a high level. They need to have a home to be able to implement a plan. And we need to be able to make the plan using our professional judgment and knowledge from our training and experience without having to reach out to an outside professional first. So if they meet all that criteria, then we collaborate with the parents and their support networks to create a safety plan to do an in-home service assessment. And our PIs are really good. If the parent says, hey, listen, I want to work with services. I get it. Uh, There's some stuff going on, but, you know, I want that kind of help. I want to be engaged. We work very hard with our families Mm -hmm. to make that happen because, you know, we we know that with that type of attitude towards that, they're, they're probably going to be successful. Yeah. And we talked about that recently about how there's a different kind of parent, you know, a parent that's like, these kids deserve the best of me. And I know I didn't give that to them, but I want to. And I'm trying, you know. If they're willing to admit that they made a mistake and acknowledge that that affected their kids, they're going to make changes. Mm-hmm. Because if you can't acknowledge that there's anything wrong, you're not going to try and fix anything. You might do the bare minimum, but you're not going to have a successful reunification. Well, and just as a disclaimer, I think we all, it's like something we should all strive for. Because even in my relationships with other people who don't have anything to do with the foster world, the ones that are more self-aware, the ones that, you know, make the most forward movement in their life. So I think, I think when I hit 40, I decided that like people who are unwilling to admit that there's ever anything that they can change in themselves are not people that I really want to have any energy to put into relationships with them. Yeah, there's no reason to be stuck in the mud. Like you just have to be self-aware. Now, I will say, though, that parents sometimes don't start always with that. Hey, I'm super aware. But if they even have a kernel or a nugget of that, just a little bit, we build on that. Yeah, Uh, Just something. So what extents are gone to in order to search for relatives? First, we usually ask the parents if they're available or the legal caregiver if they're available. Who do you know that they can go to that would be a safe place? Who do you want them to And who do you want them to go to? And if the kids are verbal um, and have the developmental capacity, we can ask them, you know, who do you want to stay with? Um, It's important to get their input as well. And sometimes they say someone different than the parent says. Mm -hmm. So that gives us more options to look into. Beyond that, we look at our prior reports, if there are any on the family, to see who we spoke to in those investigations, try to reach out to them. Um, our diligent search analysts are very helpful. They can look for extended family members through benefits and a lot of different other um, databases. We look through law enforcement reports to see who their known associates are. Sometimes you see a relative linked to someone in um, the criminal databases. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And then our CBC will be uh, funding a uh, family finders position to work exclusively with child protection investigators so that we have another resource up front to add to that, to start looking for family members too, so that that increases our chance of finding a suitable relative or non-relative so that they're not utilizing licensed care. 
And schools are a great source as well because we can look at their emergency contact cards there to see who we could reach through them. And Man Up and Go has partnered with uh, Pinellas County Schools, I think, in uh, reaching out to educators uh, and just educating them on, um, you know, non-relative placements if they've got students in their schools. Um, So that's a program that they're developing uh, as well as another They do a lot of good work in our community. Um, I know I've mentioned this before, and it's probably a really dumb thing to suggest, but I always think about it. But I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, which um, Jack Daddy does to her husband. And um, every time that genetic genealogy is used to, like, help facilitate a case, I always think, how could this be used in the foster care system? And I know that just bringing it up probably brings up, like, a dozen red flags, like they're minors, yeah. you know, you need permissions. Probably more than a dozen. <laughs> and I, I know because they come up for me too. And then I think, you know, what about like, you know, I wonder how many don't, you know, that have unknown dads that didn't, that are unaware, or maybe have paternal relatives that are unaware. You know, not that there's like a magical family waiting for them, but but there there might be options. And also, like, especially when people get into the life of drugs, because I think every family has somebody in their family that's done drugs, right, or become a drug addict. And when somebody does drugs, people separate from them because they don't want to be part of that. So maybe there are so many more relatives out there that don't even know the children were born. When I did adoptions, I know of one case, like I accidentally called the wrong person, and the sister answered was like, "Did you hear about the baby? She died." It was actually with the adoptive placement. You know, um, do you guys ever get to yeah. find out the outcome of cases that you have handled? No, not typically. The families that don't come back into the system, we likely won't see again, which mm-hmm. from a system perspective, that's a very positive outcome. They had to come into the system for a short time, depending on what their crisis was or what their experience was. They got the assistance they needed and then they've moved on yeah. and exited the system. And that's what we want for our families. Yeah. But typically we don't get to see those. So... As a PI, sometimes that's hard not to see some of the positive outcomes or the positive impacts you've made on families because their greatest compliment to your life's work is, is, their a, absence. is a family never <laughs> returning. So that's a little difficult. Occasionally, uh, we'll hear of outcomes, but usually the only the outcomes that we're aware of are usually adoptions just because we get notified when kiddos get adopted. But I would say most of the families that we work with, um, we don't get to see the outcome. Okay. And what we'll experience sometimes is it's usually not in moments that we're expecting it, but someone will come up and they to us and they know what we do. And they may say spontaneously, when I was a kid, I was involved in the system and you know, my CPI saved my life or, um, you know, because we were involved, our family changed. And wow. so I have a positive outlook on that. And and so that happens occasionally. I know it happened to Sarah a little a little while ago, too, but not, not often. Yeah. yeah. You know, how many cases does a CPI or a family support worker handle at one time or 
goal for CPIs is 15 cases at a time or less. And for the family support workers, they usually average about six cases at a time because their involvement is usually for about two weeks. The CPI's involvement is usually a max of 60 days. When we consider the various parties in child welfare, like case management, judges, attorneys, placement, foster parents, which ones do you guys interact with? We interact with all of them regularly. Uh, depending on what type of case it is, we may, you know, if we've got a couple of judicial cases going, we may interact with the state attorney's office more regularly that week, mm-hmm. but maybe less the, the, the following week. I know Sarah's unit uh, is regularly in touch with placement and foster parents, and it just depends on what type of case mm-hmm. it is. But um, all of the professionals we have involvement with, we do a really good job in our community of knowing where to go for what profession, you know, oh, I, this is, you know, in the state attorney's wheelhouse, we're going to contact yeah. them. And, you know, th- they're very good at communicating, you know, whatever we need. Well, what can these other parties in child welfare do to make you guys more efficient in the, when they're working with you? Are there things that foster parents can do um, with the family support worker and with the CPI that would help make your lives less complicated? I've seen a few times um, that might be helpful as some foster parents would like to be more involved in the beginning, mm-hmm. like they wanted to bring the kids to health screens or they wanted to do visits at first, um, but that wasn't really communicated or known by our family support worker staff and things happen so quickly in such a, you know, kind of a chaotic moment when right. you have that first placement done that that's not usually the first thing that's on your mind. Mm-hmm. It's okay. What is this kid's immediate needs? Is there anything specific I need to know about? Um, but if you have those foster parents who are able to facilitate those things, um, that would be helpful if they communicated that to the child welfare staff, whether it's our family support workers or case management or who have you, because I'm sure they would gladly like to let you do that. And that's great for the foster parent too, because you're there hearing the information firsthand and you're not worried about waiting to have the information relayed to you. Um, I know that can be difficult because you don't get much notice when you have a child immediately Mm -hmm place into your home to kind of arrange your schedule. Um, But if you want to, you have the capability. Can you give me a word that you would use to describe foster care? Complex. I would say complex would be a good word to describe foster care because there's just so many lenses that you can view it from. And um, it's really easy not to understand a lot of the moving Mm -hmm. parts to make assumptions. And a lot of times people make assumptions that are you know, not accurate, but because there's a lot of emotion mm-hmm. tied to it, it can feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. What would surprise most people to learn about CPI? I would go back to the assumptions and the lenses. Yeah. And, you know, um, people get into this job because they really want to make a difference mm-hmm. and they really want to help and they want to keep kids safe. Mm-hmm. And sometimes keeping children safe involves really hard decisions mm-hmm. that aren't always popular. No matter what happens, there, there's there's no great way to go sometimes. You're, you're choosing between a bunch of hard choices and none of them are great. But, you know, keeping in mind that the child's safety is paramount and doing that when, you know, again, those lenses, they may not understand all the moving parts and why 
something had to come to fruition. What do you think the community can do to prevent more kids from needing to come into care? First is engagement. We need the community engaged. We need services engaged. We need more access to mental health services. We need more access to in-home services. We need partnerships across DJJ, the education system, Mm -hmm. you know, social services, all of the facets to really look at, okay, where are we seeing the need the most? And then attack that need. All right, well, is the need because we just don't have the resources? Because if we don't have the resources, how do we get those resources? Mm -hmm. Who do we need to go to to implement those resources? So um, I think it's very complex. Um, because you have a lot of players involved. They don't all fall under the same umbrella or division head. So, you know, when you bring in laws and policies and do they have to partner with you or is it is it a desire? You know, how, how do we engage that? But um, I definitely see a need in the community for that. I definitely see a need in the community for foster placements. You know, I think that there is uh, an opportunity for faith-based organizations to get more involved, leverage their mission and their values to helping our community stabilize because those are the best success stories when they can get those community engagements and really implement them and then stabilize the likelihood that they're going to come back in the system greatly reduces. There's a lot to be said for when something comes out or something happens and a report's called and then you've got a CPI there. I, I know that that's the parent's worst nightmare. You know, and if we've identified something that can help them, they want to engage quickly. They want to engage right then and there. Mm-hmm. Having an intake two, three, four weeks out, history has a way of looking in the past and you're like, oh, maybe it wasn't that bad. And, you know, or we minimize things. So getting that direct connection to services and in our community and leveraging the local resources. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got resources in the schools. We've got we've got so many untapped resources that if we just communicated a little bit more efficiently and effectively, we might be able to to squeeze every last ounce of provision to to help these families. Well, thank you guys for being with us today. <laughs> we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having us. It, it's been a, a great experience. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.